Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name's Barney Hoskins. I'm here with my colleague, Mark Pringle. Hello, Barney. We will be talking later about everything that's new on Rocks Back Pages, including a 1977 audio interview with Blondie's Debbie Harry and Chris Stein. First, I'd like to introduce our very special guest, <laughs> Matt Snow. Good, good morning. Good afternoon. <laughs> good God. Yeah. Good yeah. God. Hello, good, everybody. Hello, Matsky. Good God. Is the tape rolling? Yeah. Uh, um, Matt, Matt is an old friend of Rock's Back Pages, going right back to the very genesis of the project. Absolutely. Matt has come in to talk primarily about one of the greatest albums ever made, The Beatles' Abbey Road, which was released almost exactly 50 years ago. Was it the 28th of September, 1969? I think it might have been. Picky, picky, you know, it's yeah. this, look, it's yeah. this week, yeah. and we do our podcast <laughs> yeah. on Thursday. We're not going to change the day no. of our recording. <laughs> so, but, but, Matt, we're also going to talk to you about yourself, about your career as a writer and an editor. And also, you know, you were involved in the very early stages of Rock's Back Pages. You are a true friend to RBP. And as some may not know, we've known each other since we were about 13. Yes, yes. We go, we go back to 1972. We go a long way. Yeah. Exile on Main Street, spun on well, the table. Exile on Dean's Yard, I think. Yes. Exile on <laughs> Dean's Yard. Oh, God, that's outed both of us. Yeah. But uh, actually, it's January 73, because you were already there, and you were, oh, the first, right. yes. you were the first slightly older boy who said something snarky to me as I came in. <laughs> It was like being in Tom Brown's school days. You took terrific pleasure just, in pointing out that I was going to have to wake up at 6.30 the next morning and wake up every smelly, hairy Were you both boarders? We were both weekly boarders. Right. And yes, indeed, I, I seem to recall that it, it fell to me, having endured this punishment regime for a year, to be upgraded to be the, to be the flashman. So it was, <laughs> I was looking forward to toasting Barney's buttocks. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, extraordinary is, if I'd been capable of passing common entrance, I'd have been in the sixth form when you guys were there. Oh, my yeah, God. Yeah, I went to Westminster yeah. Under School. Uh, But I was such an academic disaster. You would have been one of those sort of long-haired droogs in great coats. Yeah, that's right. Wandering around Dean's Yard, holding, you know, live dead on the Yeah, absolutely. Wouldn't you? That would have been me. And I'd have been like, oh, (laughs) that guy's so cool. (laughs) No, you wouldn't. And so stoned. (laughs) He's so stoned. Him and his dark star and eating (laughs) peach. So, look, I'm sure listeners would really like to hear us talking about Dean's Yard, Little Dean's Yard, for the next hour. But (laughs) that will have to to save that for another time and jump forward to... Well, look, Matt, you and I, we shared a lot of rock and roll experiences through the years and we ended up together on NME in the 80s. There's so many points of, of like overlap through through that story. We saw amazing gigs together. You know, you've been a real musical kind of brother to me for for practically my whole life. So it's really, really lovely to to be speaking with you about our shared passion. We still haven't grown up, have we? No, uh, no, we haven't. <laughs> we're somehow, we're, yeah. we're, I mean, what are we now? How old are we? Are we in our 70s we're, we're, now? We're, I can't even remember. <laughs> and the rest. Yeah, uh, I mean, yeah. We're, we're very ancient. Got the but, um, funeral plan. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, basically, we're still talking about how much we love, you know, the Who Live at Leeds. 
I mean, uh, some, some things never change. Yeah, time um, for arrested development. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yes, or just no development. Yeah. Well, actually, uh, no, wait, that, that, that's our entire lives. This is precisely, that's just maintained. Yeah, you fall into this as well. I absolutely yeah. fall into this. Yeah, yeah, I know. So we are outing ourselves as three elderly gentlemen who never grew up. But we hope to entertain you <laughs> along the way. Matt, you were an enemy. I mean, so I, you, you sort of came in through the bathroom window. NME. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll produce Jasper is right now, kind yeah. of cringing in the background. <laughs> yeah, the George Martin of the session. Matt, tell us about how you remember NME and just how, look back, if you would, over what 30 plus years of music writing. Well, every, every youthful experience, when you're young, when you're growing up, and having adventures, discovering the world takes on a retrospective golden glow, doesn't it? <laughs> um, doesn't it just? <laughs> and the enemy, thinking back now, and I suppose even thinking back after I left the enemy, most people... Which was when? 87. Yeah. Most people, everybody leaves the enemy and usually under a cloud. <laughs> uh, and so it was with me. Um, How black was the cloud, Matt? It was, well, they had attempted to fire me. Right. But the NUJ came to my rescue and were able to persuade the publisher that my setting off a firework in the review room was merely youthful high spirits <laughs> rather than... Actually, what it might have been, a sort of deliberate attempt at pyromania. <laughs> <laughs> Who yeah. are you trying to kill? And we're kill? not talking about <laughs> the Death Leopard album, are we? No, no, no. That came out just a teens bit later. Yes. Back in the day, mm-hmm. is that we live in a world now of surfeit, super surfeit, super surplus of music. But... Even 30, I, can, I can hear yeah. one of Matt's grand theories. Grand theories. So, no, so pay it's, attention, it's, folks. It's, it's relevant. It actually is relevant. But even in the mid-1980s, when music had to be served up on plastic tape or discs, mm-hmm. there was an enormous amount of wastage. Most records didn't sell. Most records ended up in bargain bins and so on. As um, I found to my own cost, yes. Yes, but it, it, it was a mud-on-the-wall industry. Yeah. See what stuck. And well, I slid. Yeah. <laughs> You can say <laughs> in this podcast. Oh, good. Well, I will try to temper my language. However, every week, the enemy office would fill up with singles to be reviewed. Mm-hmm. And you only had a page. So, I mean, even though today people bemoan and rightly the lack of space in order to exercise any kind of critical muscle at all, even 30 or more years ago, when there are many publications and a great deal of space, you could never address even an adequate proportion Mm -hmm. of what was submitted for your consideration, where people had spent a great deal of time, effort, creativity and money, and also marketing push. And if you were an independent record label, how could you cut through Mm -hmm. all the big releases on Warner Brothers and RCA and all of that. And so that people would come up with little gimmicks. Often there'd be good things. You know, you'd get your art school mate to do your sleeve. That was always good. Mm -hmm. But in particular instance, the band whose name I have absolutely forgotten, if I ever knew it, decided to attach to their record, because it was that time of year, a firework. Um, (laughs) And there it was in the box, 
And I thought to myself, could this really be a firework? Because it, like, it looked like a firework, but it didn't have any <laughs> writing like on saying, yeah. saying, you know, light the blue touch paper and stand well back or Roman candle or, you know, <laughs> Chinese whisper or anything like that. And it was just, it was kind of colourfully wrapped but unbranded. And I thought, well, there's only one way of finding out, isn't there? So, <laughs> so I lit the object. And it was a firework and a spectacular one. Showers of sparks bouncing off the styrofoam ceiling. Now the styrofoam ceiling. I think it was the highly flammable, yes, highly flammable ceiling. Yeah. I was in the room with the young lady with whom I was having a bit of a thing at the time, and we cleared out there sharpish. The review room being a room to listen to music. Yeah. Fortunately, it was fairly soundproof. Was so this Carnaby Street? Yeah, no. No, where New was Oxford this now? Street. New Oxford Street. So the door was heavy in order to soundproof it. So I shut the door behind me and kind of stood there whistling, you know, as I could see in the glass behind me the room filling with smoke. <laughs> <laughs> and after a while, the firework died down and I went back in you know, sort of sort of flapped away, you know, <laughs> a few flames and opened the window and I thought, I think I might have got away with this. <laughs> Walked whistling down the corridor back to the main, as it were, bear pit yeah, um, yeah. of the office, trailing as I rather suspected I would be, but <laughs> had underestimated the degree. Clouds of brimstone, <laughs> which was precisely the opportunity that the then editor, with whom I had a poor relationship, was looking for. Who was that? Ian, Ian Pye. Ah. And within a few hours, I was summoned <laughs> to the Ian Pye desk. And in a, a rare, possibly a unique outbreak of Ian Pye putting his foot down, <laughs> uh, <laughs> was sent home and suspended for gross moral turpitude or something or other. <laughs> something you've always specialised. Yeah. And told to await my fate. Now, what I had going for me was that on the whole, I was fairly popular and Ian Pye wasn't so popular. And wise, wise counsel said, you need to contact the NUJ, your union, you are, this is precisely what they are here for. So I did. And I was interviewed by the union rep. And I told him straight exactly what happened. Which it wasn't was, Phil Sutcliffe, was it? No, it wasn't. It was uh, a, a father a, of chapel. It Phil was. Sutcliffe. It was a lovely bloke called Dave. Can't remember. It was called Dave. Dave yeah, yeah. <laughs> lovely, lovely. Even if they're not called Dave, yeah. they're known brother as Dave. Dave. Yeah, brother Dave. <laughs> a lovely guy, and you know, he said, "Okay, I get it. Basically, it was you, you, you're being stupid. That's all. You're being stupid. The point was that this firework didn't look like a firework, although it could have been a firework. And there's only one way to find out. Well, it wasn't very clever, but the point of is that you did the right thing. You secured the area. You made sure that the place didn't go up in flames. So, you know, I think that we can, you know, let me have a word with the publisher. And that happened. And I was then, a few days later, summoned from my tar pit to be told that I was on... I had, you know, considered myself officially reprimanded and let that be an end to the matter. Mm-hmm. And so it was. And my end at the NME came a few months later, but that was my own volition. Right. But despite all this, you later became the editor of Mojo magazine. And 
we worked cheek by jowl. We did. We... I think the idea of you two working cheek by jowl is slightly unnerving. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's an Im- enduring image, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> we had a buffer of Jim Irving between us. But yes. for a couple of years, or thereabouts, yes. we worked together. And in the very early stages of Mojo, you were... In what I described so... as the golden age of Mojo. I'd like to think so. I mean, I think it's because it was we were doing this all for the first time. Yeah. And I'll take a certain amount of credit, Barney and myself and others, for tweaking what was actually a very basically good and shrewd mm-hmm. formula, which was instituted by David Hepworth, Mark Ellen and Paul DeNoyer. When I came in to edit the magazine, they'd been there for a couple of years Paul wasn't happy, I think, you know, being in charge. That You know, he's he doesn't have the ego, I don't think, to be in charge. And Mark and Dave wanted to be slightly hands-off. So they needed somebody to, as it were, take the reins mm-hmm. whilst also possibly having their strings pulled. Mm-hmm. And so I was quite eager for this. Yeah. The opportunity came up, and the more I thought about it, the more I thought, yes, I, I think I'd like to do this, because I liked the magazine. I've been writing for it. And mm-hmm. even though and I And you, just, of course, worked with those guys I've worked at Q. On Q, and I, li- I, I liked them. And, all, you know, I, I knew their strengths mm-hmm. and their weaknesses, and I sort of foresaw what could be the issues, and those issues did come up. Mm-hmm. But in the end, is that everybody behaved graciously, you know, and, and it's it's all to do with if you are a hands-off kind of editor-in-chief, effectively you still want quite a lot of control. Mm-hmm. But in the end, if you're gonna if you're gonna put somebody in the editor's chair, taking that kind of responsibility, you have to cede them some control. If they're not good enough to take control, mm-hmm. they shouldn't have been appointed in the first yeah. place. Yeah. You just have to have a broad agreement mm-hmm. as to what the values of the magazine are mm-hmm. and be there, ready for any conversation, discussion, advice. The values of Mojo, of course, being deeply reactionary. I would say that the word that could never be used was the N-word, nostalgia. <laughs> <laughs> but that's exactly... What it was, yeah. Yeah. which is why we're all here. This is what we're this, doing. This, we're this, having this. a lovely warm bath of nostalgia. <laughs> I mean, the question yeah. is, is nostalgia inherently reaction? No, I, I was being very unfair there. In a way, though, that the existence of magazines like Mojo, and actually to some extent Q before it, was the first time you sort of got the sense that rock and roll music as a progressive force was coming to an end, that actually we were all, and that's included people a lot younger than us collectively, were look, starting to look to the past. Yes, I agree. I think it is that Q and then Mojo were all about sort of taking stock of mm-hmm. the landscape such as it had arrived in this maturity. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, yes. the, the maturity of huge stadiums of this yes. exciting new recorded music format, the CD and yeah. then the box set. And, and the fact that you had artists whose careers had long lasted what they suspected their careers would be when they started yes. out. Bands like the Stones probably saw no more than three, four years. Oh, they existence. used to. They all used to joke about yes. it at the mm-hmm. time. And you know, Mick Jagger, you know, getting his, you know, as, as subsequently emerged, somebody having a conversation with him in the sixties about yeah. he actually starting in about nineteen sixty five to you know get a pension plan. <laughs> uh, the quote being, you know, I can't see myself dancing around like this when I'm sixty. Absolutely, yeah, yeah completely. 
is it fair to say, you see, I remember when I was contacted by Paul Dinoy about Mojo, you know, we're starting this new magazine. I was someone who's definitely not welcome at Q at all, having been, you know, someone who dropped Holland Bart's name in the pages of the NME. So, so I was by definition, I was thrown in with that kind of, Paul Morley and Penmaker, you're never going to write for Q. Yeah. And then for some reason, they kept, I think probably because I'd written a book, a book about the band, I, I was suddenly persona grata at Mojo and, mm-hmm. and, and then went on staff there eventually. My sort of interpretation of the launch of Mojo to some degree, Matt, and I'd be interested to know whether you, you, you thought this had legs, is that, that actually Mark, Ellen and Paul had got a little tired themselves of the sort of flippancy of the Q mindset, that whole sort of Sir Ginger of Bakerford, yes. sort of, <laughs> yeah. sort of, which was very amusing, but it was it was kind of rock nostalgia with tongue in cheek, and oh, it was very sort of actually quite public school. Yes, and it was, Mojo yes. was sort of like, actually, do you know, we really do care. We mm. care. We are real fans. It's not something mm. that we're just going to kind of gently take the piss out of. Um, we're actually going to do these big in-depth features about artists and scenes and movements and albums that that, that we think should be taken really seriously. We're going to do it yeah. class. I mean, I, I, as, as, a, as a reader, I never liked Q. I always just felt awkward with it. it, was, it there was a tone about it. I just like... I, I really, really like Mojo even though this me felt that this is all a bit backward-looking. But nonetheless, I mean, a magazine would put John Lee Hooker on the front cover of like one of its yeah. earliest issues mm. and things like that. Yeah, that was issue number two. That, yes. that yes. Was, it's, it's making a hell of a statement. Yes. It's yes. making a hell of a statement. Yeah. And also the writing was really good, that the writers were given space to actually kind of really dig into things. Uh, exactly. And, and so it was, I, I personally loved it, and I suppose that my reaction against... This nostalgia is what drove me away from it in the end. And actually it has driven me away from that kind of writing since then. Yeah, I think it's because, you know, Mojo has fundamentally stuck to the formula. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's extraordinary how little it's changed. Yes. Funnily enough, the editor's job came up about a, a couple of years ago. Mm. And I thought, you, why not like, I don't know, like Howard Wilkinson? Perhaps <laughs> 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 I'll forget that I already edited this <laughs> <Yeah>. rag. <laughs> Have you know go back and you know so I got an interview and for the first time I thought really solidly what would I do mm-hmm. if I was in charge of the magazine now yeah and I realised that what I would want to do would be actually make a lot of radical changes right and that was actually the gist of mm-hmm. my interview yeah which was this magazine I see in front of me now is a wonderful testimonial to how much I got it right back in 1995 <laughs> yeah. but yeah. You know, is it actually fit for purpose yeah. in 2017 yeah 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 good mm. point um, yeah and uh, you didn't get the job I didn't get the job <laughs> <laughs> Because um, you then went on to edit four four two magazine. You once sent me to photograph Dimitri Karin when he was playing for what was it now Hornchurch in the, the you know <laughs> Southern League Division Two. And I went out with this extraordinary journalist whose name entirely escapes me to this freezing cold training ground. Kind of, and Dimitri's going no photographs, no photographs. <laughs> <laughs> it was a miserable experience. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I did, How I, long did I, you last at 442? I, I worked there for four years. Mm. And by the way, to our listeners, 
four four two is a football magazine. It's, yes, it is. And yes, we, we won't we won't divert. Tune into our new football <laughs> podcast, yeah. music and football podcast. <laughs> yes, you know, and then yeah. real ale podcast. Yeah, and um, kind of anything else we yeah. talk about. Yeah, little Dean's Yard podcast. Yeah. Yes, then it was a football thing. But just briefly to go back to what you were saying about the tone of Mojo, the approach of Mojo mm. as a reaction to the tone and approach of Q. Yep. Now, Q in itself, as you alluded to yourself, Barney, was a reaction to the enemy. So everything was reacting yes. to, uh, to, to what was then the status quo. Sure. Well, it wasn't even the status quo anymore because it wasn't as if Ian Penman and Paul Morley were still writing regularly in NME. No, they were, no but, but what I remember Mark Allen saying to me, you know, a couple of commandments. First of all is that the, the, the perpendicular pronoun was banned. Yes. No I. So there, no was, to, I. there was to be no self-position. <laughs> that in, in that would have hobbled Ian and Paul. Yes. yes. And probably me and a, and a yeah. bunch of others. It would have been. So we had to learn to write without the I. Is we had to understand what we were working for was effectively a brand. Yeah. Now, the thing about the public school tone of voice, the sub-PG Woodhouse, stuff, which, of course, all sort of vaguely derived from smash hits, you know. Yeah, and Tom Hibbert being Tom the Hibbert. greatest yeah. exponent. Yes. And, and, and br- a brilliant humorist. A brilliant humorist. And, you know, Paul Denoy, who was a very good mimic, he was, you know, he was able to get it as one. Mm-hmm. And it was actually, once you'd sort of got the rhythm and the, and the vocabulary, you could fall into it too. Yeah. But there was a good reason for that. It didn't have to be that, but it had to be something, because the approach was otherwise actually tremendously old-school journalistic. Mm-hmm. which is watch the story, yes. get your multiple viewpoints, get your quotes across a range and actually put together a narrative and mm-hmm. a picture which anybody who is involved in the story themselves could recognise as being actually broadly accurate. Right Now, this is a kind of thing which, of course, American journals do very well, but it can read tremendously flat. Yes. Mm. So the Woodhousey and the Q style, you know, mm. you know, the Sir Michael of Hucknall, yeah. uh, <laughs> is, uh, w- was just simply a way of gingering it up, yeah, cheering yeah, it up, putting yeah. a, you know, putting a little smiley face yeah. emoji on yeah. it. Yes. Yeah. And some of it was very funny. The other thing I would say is that, you know, Mark had an uncanny ability to commission pieces on kind of what I, certainly at that age, wanted to know about, what I wanted to read about. Every month it was kind of like, yeah, I do want a sort of digest or pricey of this scene. That I really admired editorially. He just... He knew what people wanted to read about. Generally, it was people yeah. who were a little bit older who mm. were no, not actively involved in going to see mm. these bands mm. anymore, but still wanted to know what they were about. There's, there's a very interesting sort of historical pattern here. You get Nick Logan at the NME, who then goes on to smash hits. And then the face. Mm. And, then, and then the face. Smash hits then becomes very much... Ellen and Hepworth's baby. Yes. So in a sense, they're a second generation of of these really quite extraordinary publishers of music magazines which were were really new at the time. I mean, Smash Hits, I didn't read back then because I was superior to it. Mm. Now one of my great pleasures in my job here at Rock's Back Pages is reading Smash Hits. It's and again, fantastic. It's such a great magazine. Neil Tennant, I mean, exactly. very funny yeah. writers. It's, it's, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yes, you know, Sylvie, all of, all, of the, yeah. all of these people, have, they are so amusing. Yes, yeah. yes, yes yeah. completely. Uh, and also, uh, the Smash Hits has marvellous quality of not taking anything seriously at all, but writing about bands who 
would never get written about in a pop magazine now. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, people like the Angelic Upstarts have featured in Smash Hits. I mean, all <laughs> kinds of mad stuff going yes. into there, which, you know, yeah. was extraordinary. Yeah. Yes. And they were selling in yeah. hundreds of thousands yeah. to teenagers. Yes. You know, what, what a triumph that was. But of course, I was far too much for snob at the time. <laughs> <laughs> so, Matt, I mean, one of the pieces that we've included with you as the feature writer on the homepage this week is your interview with Paul McCartney in Mojo from 1996, which kind of segues neatly into the broader discussion about Abbey Road. I'd just love to hear what it was like, in a sense, for someone of our generation to to actually be interviewing these figures who'd been almost like mythical deities for us growing up, right? I mean, so when we first met, we met in 1973, the Beatles obviously weren't together anymore. But but we we were still listening to the Beatles and Who and the Stones. Of course we were. That was the year when the Red and the Blue albums came out, which shot to number one and stayed there all over the world. And there was this huge amount of Beatles love. And when would they get back together again? Mm -hmm. It was, you know, it was still very much a strong possibility, so people thought. All that that needed to happen was Ringo to put out that record photograph. Yeah. Or that album where every single other Beatle is on it. For people to think, oh, gosh, they're talking to each other again. Mm -hmm. This this could happen. And suddenly the oil crisis would be over, the Yom Kippur war would be Mm. forgotten, and we would be back in the 1960s and everything would it's be funny, I, again. I, I had no desire for that or no interest in that whatsoever at that, at that time. I mean, the Beatles were over for me by the end of 1968, pretty much. Well, get Definitely you. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I'm sort of like one foot in your camp and, and probably one in my... I mean, you know, what I really want to... I, let's go into the whole story of of Abbey Road, because you're a real expert. should mention that you, you've written a book called, essentially it's called The Beatles Solo. It's, it's a sort of four-part group biography of their lives after the Beatles ended. That's right. So you're a real expert on well, this. Well, that's kind of you to say so. I mean, is it obviously, is it expert, though I might claim to be, is that we do have to mention Mark Lewison, the expert's expert. The one yeah, we thought we, about getting yeah. him in, and then we just thought, oh, let's yeah. have Matt. Yeah. But, uh, but, <laughs> but, you know, when I was writing this book, is that each of the four volumes had to start with cut at roughly the same point, and that is, is that every single Beatle left the Beatles at various points, and all of them returned, except for first John and then Paul. But Ringo left the Beatles in 1968 mm. and had to be back. For like a week, yeah. Yeah, and then George a few months later. Mm. But it was the idea that the Beatles sort of broke up in slow motion. But in hindsight, I don't know whether anybody read this very wonderful piece. It was an interview of Mark Lewison by Richard Williams in The Guardian. And it actually yes. postulated a little bit of possible count, you know, alternative. This was like history. about a month ago, wasn't it? Yes, it yeah. was a month ago, and you know, it was the, the key question is what was really going on in John Lennon's mind 
in September 1969, mm. which is when, according to the authorised version, is that he quietly, discreetly told the other three that he was leaving the group, would not be making it public because Alan Klein was negotiating mm -hmm. a new deal for the Beatles and Apple with EMI, and obviously they had to be presented, you know, an intact face to these mm -hmm. suits. But he wanted to leave. And yet a tape which is forwarded to Mark Lewison, which was recorded by John Lennon yeah. at a meeting with George and with Paul for Ringo's benefit because Ringo was ill. Yeah. He was unable to attend the meeting. And so John, therefore, to help him understand what was happening at this meeting, taped the thing. And John was making quite clear in September 1969, Abbey Road was just on the verge of coming out, mm -hmm. that he was n there was no talk of this being the last album. He was looking forward to what the album afterwards may, mm -hmm. be, may be like. And there was no sort of yeah. suggestion of finality. <clears throat> and I, it, it sort of made me think something tremendously obvious. None of them had a career plan. Mm -hmm. You know, they were all sort of almost reacting day to day to mm -hmm. irritations, to strains, to struggles, to, you know, loyalties. And only in hindsight does the narrative begin yeah. to take on a pattern. Oh, yeah. Correct me, Let It Be was recorded before Abbey Road, but released Correct. After. Correct. That, that's yes. correct. And you've obviously, like all of us, have seen the film Let It Be. Yes. Which is a, an extraordinarily depressing experience. Mm. Uh, that there is a band fracturing. You've, you've got Paul McCartney snarling at George Harrison, who's been passive aggressive in return. John's in the corner with Yoko. Ringo's up in his drum riser, kind of chewing gum and looking bored. I mean, this is not a happy band. Mm. No, it wasn't. It was a, basically, it was, you know, it was Paul's idea. And it was a lousy idea, mm. um, which was, well, the lousy part of the idea was not let's all get together again and play together and try to recover what it was that mm. made us such a good yeah. band. Because that was actually perfect. I think it was feasible. And I think they could have done it and should, you know, let's perhaps should have done where it we where we long. want yeah. to get back. <clears throat> but don't do it in January. In a in movie Twickenham. studio, in, in, the freezing uh, cold. in the freezing cold, yeah. where you've got yeah. a couple of malfunctioning space heaters, um, and this is back, bef you know, before mm. the era of global warming, <laughs> when January was bloody cold. Mm. They were they were cold and grumpy as mm. all of us yeah. would be. Sure, yeah, sure. So, mm. I mean, the big question in terms of the sort of received historical wisdom is it how come given what a miserable experience that was how come abbey road was such a brilliant record and such a kind of happy record really in so many ways yeah well i think another thing without sort of being too deterministic about the weather and that is the, the <laughs> summer of 1969 in in britain was one of the longest spells of unbroken sunshine for years. Right. It was a lovely summer, and lovely summers do tend to... Produce classic produce, albums. Well, no, they produ it produces good mood. But also... A good mood. Yeah, that's yeah. But, a fair but, point. But, yeah. but also, George Martin was back in the producer's chair. He'd been absent for what became Let It Be. Yes. That was basically produced by the band with Jeff Emmerich, I guess, engineering, probably. I don't know. Well, it had a range of engineers, yeah. but I mean, the whole, you know, it, there was just tapes and tapes yeah. and tapes and tapes of it, which, were, you know, they tried to make sense of, mm -hmm. and then they got they got bored, but, they, and, and, and they dumped it all later on. Of I mean, I think then. sometimes George Martin is overrated as a producer. He's got this extraordinary sort of aura around him because he was involved in these extraordinary records that the Beatles mm. made. But he, what one of the qualities that a good producer will bring to, to any band 
is coherence in the process of making the record. And I think that that's one thing he definitely brought to Abbey Road. Can we talk about the sound of Abbey Road? Because I think it is one of the great things about the record, that it sort of sonically almost introduces the way rock is going to sound in the 70s. It's Uh, so mm -hmm. different. If you compare it to the White Album, Mm -hmm. which is so sort of rough and ready in so many ways, it's it's not slick and deluxe. There's something really deluxe and cushioned about Abbey Road. It's deluxe because they were back in Abbey Road, which had had an upgrade. Absolutely. And the upgrade had had more available tracks. It was about multi-tracking. Now, you know, one of the things, you know, what you might call the uh, sort of a bit of a kind of counterfactual is, let's say the Beatles had stayed together, what would they have sounded like by, say, 1971 or Mm. two? And I think they might have sounded actually rather like Queen. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) You may, unfortunately, may well have been right. You you know, I mean, I like Queen, but the fact is that it's... That is a generic rock sound. Mm. And and the Beatles would have ended up sounding like a generic, large rock group of that period. I think think they might have done. And I I think they would have fallen in... They were great vocal harmonists. You can hear this on Sun King and Because. And I think they would have loved the idea of stacking vocals. And just seeing how many vocals they could stack, and then you're getting very close but to Queen. Paul McCartney's subsequent act of his Wings were very much a generic 70s mm. rock band, mm. you know, with the generic 70s rock production mm. sound and so on and so forth. If we flip to one of the pieces that we've selected about um, contemporary pieces about Abbey Road, there's the interview that Miles did, Barry Miles did, with Lennon in Oz just after the album came out, was published just after the album came out. And it's interesting, I mean, you'll remember this, because I think we even ran it in Mojo. Well, um, we did, we, got the, we actually got the complete tape transcript. We did get the, the, the which t- was exactly. far more than was published in Exactly. Yeah. But so, in the original piece, Miles asked Lennon about, you know, are they a group? Do they really function together as a group? And he says, you no longer have a group direction. Lennon goes, we never did. It was just whoever was pushing the limits of the bag at the time. But he does concede that this album is more beatly than the White Album. And then he says, we don't have conceptions of albums. I think Paul has conceptions of albums or attempts it, like he conceived the medley thing, the Mm. great side too medley. I'm not interested in conceptions of albums. Now, I think we would probably all agree that this is... I mean, it's not a perfect album. No. Mm. There's things on it. They're always great. No. No. I mean, you know, nobody wants... Really, let's get honest. Who wants Oxbus's Garden? Who really wants Maxwell's Silver Hammer? You take things like that out of Beatles albums and you really have flawless records. Yes. But I don't think the Beatles ever got more flawless, really, than in that medleyized sequence of fragments on side two to me it's one of the greatest things that that, that they ever did yeah. and mm. you have to put that that 
that's McCartney at work, isn't it? Yes, it is. I mean, even though you know, to my, you know, personally, two of the highlights are oh, actually Lennon's. Lennon's. You know, the Polythene Pound, oh, yeah, Mr. Mustard. Yeah. But 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 even so, it was the concept and the execution, and that it was the whole thing was actually more or less recorded in order, mm-hmm. and it wasn't just kind of put together with razor blades yeah, on, no. the edi- on the no, editing block. absolutely. Although clearly there was some of that. But yeah. in, is, is that they had worked out in advance roughly how it was going to flow and how to actually get mm. melodically and harmonically yeah. from one song to the next. I think that while McCartney is, has become, in some ways, a fairly absurd figure in recent years, he's unfairly looked upon as the reactionary of the band, which he may have been in terms of his hauling out old musical tropes and so on from Sgt Pepper mm-hmm. onwards, but he was the guy who was more aware of advances being taken in sort of avant-garde music and so on than anyone else in the band. He was the one who was living in London in 67, 68, going to... Indica bookshop to art shows, hanging out with that sort yeah. of scene. And he was the guy who probably had the most ambitious ideas, though Lennon often produced the best tunes. Mm. Yes, I think the idea of the avant-garde, this is something which really rankled with Paul McCartney. I've interviewed him a few yeah, times. Yeah. And I think now that he is sort of 76 years old, he's he sort of got over it but the point being is that in 1966 you know john was at home in weybridge yeah. not being very happy yeah. getting a bit fat and dropping acid and watching telly i was the one who <laughs> was yeah, yeah you know who was out at the queen elizabeth hall that's and things right. you know yeah. seeing fluxus and all all of this stuff that's right and i was fascinated by all oh, of yeah. this but at the same time is is you know it was actually john who did revolution number 9 yes. because he had that courage to do so it was right. let's That's just good do point. it yeah and yes. i remember I've, I've interviewed ringo as well and you know i did ask him about johnny of course you know and when he meets a surviving beetle it's always got to come up and he said you know what the great thing about john was he, what he taught me just jump in mm, just yeah. jump in. Yeah, yeah. just do it yeah i mean yeah, the, way, yeah. the, be- the best song they ever did together which they did separately and joined together was day in the life and sergeant pepper yeah. which is extraordinary and it's one of them one of the part of it is john's song and the mm. other part is paul's song and yet they ram it together in the most mm. extraordinary way uh, the best song on that album i think by a mile. Yeah, and I think... One of, you know, one of their great masterpieces. I think so, and I, I think Paul, Paul McCartney maintains it's the best thing they ever did. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's talk just finally, just allude to Alan Klein and the rift that, that he essentially mm. caused between John and, and Paul more than anything else. You Never Give Me Your Money, one of my favourite McCartney oh, yes, melodies, me yeah. addresses this. I mean, it's such a beautiful song, but it's it's, of course, about what ultimately ripped the Beatles apart, isn't it? You never give me your money You only give me your funny paper And in the middle of negotiations You break down What does that song mean to you? 
Yeah, it's about Alan Klein. Paul McCartney's, you know, mm. said as much. Alan Klein, yeah. who is now dead, is fascinating because of the effect he had on Lennon. Mm-hmm. My understanding is that Alan Klein grew up in an orphanage in New Jersey. Either he knew, having possibly read The Hunter Davis, or he intuited or he worked out somehow that John had huge abandonment issues. Yeah, mm-hmm. and he could uh, exploit those. And he could exploit those. Basically, I think Alan Klein sort of gaslighted John. Yeah. And even though part of John was sceptical, and you can see that, in, funnily enough, on uh, Rock and Roll Circus, the Rolling Stones right. scene, where he and Mick are dressed up in polo neck sweaters, as worn by Alan Klein, and are doing the New Jersey accent, and taking the piss out of what right. was who was then the Rolling Stones manager. Yes, but nonetheless, I think is that John felt a deep emotional connection to Klein. Mm. That here is a man who oh, is like me, mm. and yeah. he he gave him his trust. Right, George and Ringo, because they were always fairly tractable people, and John was always a natural leader. Yeah. fell into line. Mm. Yeah. Paul, if you like, the rival power base within the Beatles, yeah. but not particularly looking for confrontation, nonetheless did his homework. He was marrying, well, as we know, Linda. That's and right. And Linda, from a fairly well-to-do, well-connected New York family, mm-hmm. the Eastmans, from John Eastman, mm-hmm. her father said, Alan Clyde, we know all about him. Don't trust him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And the Stones were telling them the same thing. Yeah. The Stones, at that point, mm. were fed up with Alan Clyde. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly worked Definitely. out they basically sold everything, handed over everything yeah. to Alan Clyde, mm-hmm. his ABCO organisation. Mm-hmm. So you thought that with people like Keith Richards and Mick Jagger sort of coming up to John and saying, listen, he's our manager, steer mm-hmm. clear here. Mm-hmm. You know, the penny would have dropped. Mm-hmm. It would have done. And I think that's... John Lennon is, to my mind, one of the most kind of psychologically fascinating people in rock history. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what makes, to me, his his music uh, gives it such an emotional tug. He had an emotional tank which could never be filled. His needs were so strong, mm-hmm. his ability to express that need, you know, not merely in the words he wrote, but in the voice he sang. Mm-hmm. To my mind, I think he's the greatest rock and roll singer of all time. A precursor of Kurt Cobain, you know, yeah. just as much as he is an inheritor of some period Elvis. Mm-hmm. And that is, is that there, the, the, this strong sense of a man really emotionally quite close to the edge at all times. On the new expanded Abbey Road, there is a take of Come Together, where he, in the end, you know, it breaks down. It's a long and complicated lyric, and it, the, the take breaks down because he just gets a word wrong and so forth. It's a very, very powerful vocal. Mm-hmm, really. And he says yeah. on tape, oh, I'm sorry about that. I just get so involved right. when I'm singing. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. And it's that sense of deep engagement sure. and involvement. Me. 
I want to say one other thing about 1969 and the Beatles. I went to see a really good retro soul group earlier this year called Duran Jones and the Notations. Mm-hmm. And they kind of mix up Southern and Philly, really, you know, good band. Do see them. Good record as mm. well. And one of the things they do live is Don't Let Me Down, which was a Beatles B-side. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you realise this is a soul record. This is a deep soul record written and sung by John Lennon. Mm-hmm. But it didn't, when you hear it done by the Beatles, it doesn't immediately connect. But if you think for a moment, that, that's what, it, that's, Lennon in some ways, I think, was a, a, a very, very soulful singer without having any particular soul music trope about him. Yeah. You know, you can't hear the Sam Cooke or the Otis no, Redding no. or whatever in his voice. Yeah. But in terms of the emotional essence, I yeah. think it's, you know, it is like Otis Redding, it's a big man brought down. And yeah. some of his greatest singing, I think, on, on a real highlight from this album, I Want You, She's So Heavy. Yes. Fantastic. Yeah. And McCartney also sings in a very kind of raw and impassioned way on, on Oh Darling, which is probably the most sort of retro track. Oh, yeah, it's like the platters, you know. Yeah, it's, yeah. Um, it's terrific. I think Paul McCartney was a wonderful singer, but I think in some ways he was in the shadow of John Lennon. I think mm. Paul would have loved to have had the emotional pull of John. And in the more considered ballads the for no ones mm. he does mm. but as a rocker yeah um, mm. she's a woman saw her standing there these are mm. terrific but what they are is highly stylized yes. Yes. whereas when john was singing he could sing Much please mr postman and yeah, it sounded like person. the world de- yeah. depended yes. on the, it the, yes. i mean the one thing about both of them we're talking about yeah. nostalgia and about mojo and so on and yeah. so forth was nostalgia being a sort of central trip the Beatles always were nostalgists from the very earliest oh, days. Yes. They were right. always looking back to black music mm. from four and five musical years English music. And, English, yeah. Yeah. and in a way, I think that's my problem. Ultimately, with the Beatles, as much as I love great sways, what they did is that it's the part of their records I least like are the most obvious references to, to the past. Nods to the sure, past. sure. Although we, one of the things is that we live in, you know, the past is now 60 or 70 years ago. To the Beatles, a Little Richard record... Was four years ago. Was, was four yeah. years ago. And, and moreover, it's a bit like the Rolling Stones with Chuck Berry, is that they were scholars and enthusiasts. They knew about this stuff, but they also knew is that this was, you know, only a coterie of people in Britain knew no, about right. this. Exactly. That's exactly. Um, and, you know, so therefore, to most British fans, this stuff was brand new. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And, you know, indeed, as, you know, one of the great shifts in British rock music came yes. in 1966 when simply is every single British band on the circuit doing rock and roll and soul music, they'd run out of songs to cover. They were all covering the same stuff. Yeah. They had to start writing yeah. or else, you know, fall yes. by the wayside. Yeah, no, that's, 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 that's a very good point. We really do need to move on, but, so. but I should just mention we have two contemporary reviews of Abbey Road, including one, astonishingly, a really great review, a very positive review by John Mendelssohn. <laughs> yes, it's Mendo moment in the RBP podcast. But John absolutely raved about Abbey Road yeah. in Rolling Stone. Um, there's also, what I really like is there's a, a Lon Goddard piece from Record Mirror, which is which came out the week of the release. So it's literally, you get the sense that Lon has, has 
just literally had one listen to yeah, the yeah, record. Yeah. And he's very he's he's very approving. But Mendo's really good on, on Abbey Road and Running Stuff. Mendo's not known for approving much. Uh, very much. He told us when he was in the podcast that John Lando asked him, John, do you actually like rock and roll? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> he says that the Beatles can unify seemingly countless musical fragments and lyrical doodlings into a uniformly wonderful suite, as they've done on side two, seems potent testimony that no, they've far from lost it and no, they haven't stopped trying. Mm. Which I think is a nice Fair way enough. to sum it up. We are going to, the non-Beatles piece that we've selected by yourself neatly involves Blondie and Talking Heads and the Ramones. So you're in LA at the Greek theatre with these veterans of the CBGB scene. And it's it's a lovely piece about these guys who are never supposed to be doing a, a kind of nostalgic <laughs> kind of, to 1990, they're waxing nostalgic, of course, about Hilly Crystal and CBGBs. Shall we just hear a clip? from the week's audio. Yeah, or do you want to talk about the audio first? Yeah, just tell us tell us about about what's on it. Well, what, one thing that all three of us in this room now have in common is we all went to see Blondie supporting television in 1977 at Hammersmith Odeon. And I think there's a consensus among us that Blondie blew television some way off the stage. This is John Tobber interviewing him for the BBC. Blondie was sort of semi we weren't a fully formed band at the stage. They talk in the interview about their nostalgia for 60s influences, the girl groups. They talk about meeting Phil Spector and so on and so forth. Ellie Greenwich came and hung out with them. That They are, at this point, a much more backward-looking band than they were to be a year or two later. They talk about starting in 73. Debbie talks about her early bands, Wind and the Willows, and... We'll listen to this clip. She talks about being a waitress, a beautician, a bunny girl, and working as a waitress at Max's Kansas City. You, you were a, a waitress at Max's Kansas City at that stage. Yeah, I was a waitress there for a while. And uh, I was a bunny for a while, and a uh, beautician, and I worked in a health club, and um, I worked in a a head shop, actually, before... It was the first head shop. Yeah, I worked in the very first head shop in New York. But that was before the band, or during the Wind in the Willows, like the first first band. And um, I just did a lot of different jobs, you know. BBC, right? Oh, yeah, BBC, too. <laughs> really? What, BBC in New York? Yeah, I worked there for a while as a secretary. <laughs> that oh. actually was my very first job out of school. Well, you're returning to your previous employers with this interview. <laughs> um, at Max's, was it the Lou Reed Velvet Underground type time? Yeah, mm -hmm. it was very exciting and um, very picturesque, and I met all the stars. I met all of them. I served them their steaks. Most of them were so stoned they couldn't eat, and they'd still give me $5 tips, and I'd get to wrap up the steaks and take them home. <laughs> it was really cool. I had a great time. Do you have a dog? At that time, no, <laughs> I ate them. <laughs> great, that's it's lovely. That's a great show. Nice. And we're going to have a, another clip later on the end of the show, which is about her blondness and Blondie and yes. how those two things interact. Yes. but it's it's a, it's a charming interview. I mean, dear old John, he's a bit um, a, a journalist of his generation. I don't think he got how smart 
quite how smart Debbie Harry is. And like many journalists at that time, they're constantly asking her, you know, what is it like to be a sex symbol? And she really, she deflects those mm. questions very well. Very, very, very well indeed. You know, because she never played up to yeah. that. The whole thing was, well, was like yes. a cartoon yes, in a way. Yes, it was cartoony, yes. but yeah. she's no fool, Deborah. No, no, no. no. Um, not. And you just have to cast your mind back to the posters, to the album sleeves mm-hmm. and everything like that, is that she was not presenting herself in a, no. a you know a long brown shift to no. the ankles. No, no. You know, she was in hot pants and miniskirts of and course. things like that. Two reasons, obviously, sex sells. We all know that. Mm-hmm. But also because it's a, it was alluding to the to the girl stars of the past, yes. who also would reveal quite a bit of yeah. leg and shoulder and so forth, because mm. it was all part yeah. of the game. Because who was your, you know, who was your market? Yeah. Teenagers with hormones. Well, of course. Mm-hmm. I mean, what was extraordinary about that Hammersmith Odeon show was that, I mean, I already bought X Offender. Yes. Uh, I bought it when it came out. Yes. Um, but once I spent an evening in the basement with Judy Nyland, Pat Paladin from Snatch, and I think, who are Blondie? You know, yes. and I think, oh, you know, they're great, but, you know. And so I was very much looking forward to seeing them. I didn't feel the powerful sort of sexual energy coming off the stage from her. There's always I don't she, think she, she did exude a powerful right. No, she there, didn't. There was, there was a sort of kittenish, yes. tomboyish quality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. precisely. Yes. Actually, the, yeah. The, the major source of energy was the magnificent Clem Burke oh. on drums. Oh, yes, with the, the great what, what a haircut. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> uh, we, we posted a live review of Blondie a couple of weeks ago from about a year or so later, and I forget who it was, Phil Sutcliffe, I think, saying he was mesmerised by Clem Burke. He's doing things like flipping sticks up in the air, catching them on the... Well, he's hugely yeah. influenced by Keith Moon, Massive, wasn't yes, he? Keith um, Moon. Should have replaced Keith Moon in The Who. That would have been gosh, good. Yes. Yeah, that yeah. would have been much better, wouldn't it? I mean, to put this in context, Debbie's autobiography is coming out next week. It's right. called Face It, and this is her telling yeah. her story uh, properly for we, the first we time. We were talking about Alan Klein, they were notoriously completely screwed by their management, that they should have made millions and ended up actually broke by the time the band broke up. It's one of the great thefts of... And you think these are smart people, they should have had their eye on the ball, but it's amazing how people don't keep their eye on the ball. Mm. And then shortly after that, Chris got very ill, yeah. and she spent, what, some years nursing him back to hell. Yes. You know? yes. But I, I have a lot of time for Blondie. They made a lot of records that I really love, not over a fairly short period. You're talking about maybe three... Four years. Yeah. They got together with Michael Chapman, who turned out to be the great producer for Oh, them. yes, for yeah. their third album. Well, yeah. Parallel, Parallel Lines, Lines was a wonderful. huge yeah. album. Yeah. Yeah. Heart of Glass was number one. And I mean, one, one of the things. When I was working for Mojo, for you essentially, Matt, when I, was, when I was in America, you commissioned me to do a cover story on Blondie when they kind of reformed. Yes. Yes. They recorded a new album, it was the first album of yes. new material. And, and of course, the story that really emerged when I was talking to all of them was that they were the New York band that wasn't supposed That's to right. succeed. Mm. Everyone looked down <laughs> on them because they were like this pop band that were about early 60s girl group mm. references. Yep. And they were just, they, were, they weren't given very much respect by the likes of Patti Smith mm. or Tom Verlaine. Mm-hmm. And they were only too happy to tell me that. And so when they became the the one band that really yeah. did mm. experience massive mainstream mm-hmm. success, it was bitterly resented. Yeah, though, though, to be fair, 
television did invite them on this UK tour. They were invited by television. Yeah, but, but, but not, television not, bitterly regretted it. Probably they were being blown off stage it, every you know. night. I mean, because, it. look, the truth is, if you put me on the spot and say, look, you're going to a desert island, are you taking parallel lines are you, or are you taking Marquee Moon? I'm, of course I'm taking Marquee Moon. And yet, seeing that show live... Television were dreary. Oh, God, they, they really were yeah. disappointing. I saw them a couple of times over, over in that period, and they just never delivered yeah, live. Yeah, yeah. But I still think Marky Moon is is a masterpiece. Oh yes. Um, and you know the truth is, am I am I really am I really taking sort of Blondie to my desert island? I like some of them, but I can't I can't sort of say that I think it's sort of timeless, mm. deathless art. Yeah, uh, I mean, yeah, 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 but it, it, it is that thing. It's fun. It's pop music. About. It's you know, it's it's fun. Yeah. I, mean, I was just thinking this. It's you know, this is a sort of brief diversion. It's that time of year when when rock hacks get asked to think about what's the best album you've heard audio and all of it. So I'm going through all of these albums and a tremendous amount of sort of navel gazing records. You know, b- b- records of people as we're processing their emotions mm-hmm. and their hurts and things like that, which is terrific. They do it really intelligently, really creatively. But you know, the record I just want to live with. Lizzo. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. All of us. Yeah. Jasper's punching yeah. the air from the producer chair over there. We love Lizzo. Jazzo. Yeah. I was going to say Jazzo. <laughs> Jazzo turned us on to Lizzo. Yeah. No, Jasper turned us on to Lizzo before I, I, we I, I, her, I, and you we know, love When her. you were saying that, in that, yeah. your sentence there, I was thinking, he's going to say Lizzo. Lizzo. He he's going to say Lizzo. Lizzo. Yeah. You know, yeah. No, I'm really funny. glad he said that, too. Yeah, of because course. I, I completely agree with you. Yeah. There's joy in there. Yeah. There's brightness. There's life. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's yeah, fantastic. Yeah. There's yeah. one thing I just wanted to pick out from this this really great piece, Matt, you wrote about the Ramones, Blondie and Talking Heads, minus David Byrne, mm. touring in 1990. There's this great story that the Talking Heads drummer Chris France tells you about being in the disgusting toilet at CBGB's. Um, well, there are a couple of things. He says that Lou Reed gave him great advice, and he said, don't, don't, don't give the, the record companies... <laughs> no, no, well, that too. But don't give the record companies too much power, but make friends with Which journalists. Is, yes. Which is so different mm. now. But in, that really made sense yeah. there. Although so, Lou Reed had a very funny way of going about it. <laughs> yeah, it, the, the irony of that it doesn't yeah. escape any of us. But so this great story, France is, is in the, he's in one of the cubicles in the CBGB's toilet. And he overhears Robert Criscow, the alleged dean of rock criticism, talking to the excellent James Walcott, who yes. became a fantastic Vanity Fair writer. And and they're having this conversation about these punk bands, and Francis sort of in the loo, kind of pretending he's not there. And he and he says he hears Chris Gow saying to James Walcott, "I've come down to see these Talking Heads because there's a buzz about them, but I don't think they're ever going to be able to make a record. Who would want them to?" And Walcott says, "Because Walcott wrote one of the first pieces yeah. about that scene, I think in the Village Voice, he says, well, perhaps by some weird twist of fate, they might be successful one day. And France at that point comes out of the loo and says, sorry, I have to wash my hands. <laughs> <laughs> I love that story. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it, we all know that, that those bands changed the whole landscape mm. of rock and roll, yeah. didn't they? And yes, no one expected Blondie to become the biggest success story of all of them. Uh, absolutely. And, and and then Talking Heads to have this huge, belated absolutely. commercial. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And the Ramones drove on 
Oh. As long as they could, you know, flogging, just, flogging, just flogging, yeah. flogging a dead riff. Well, but um, also is that hey, you know, when it comes to the battle of the t-shirts, mm. the Ramones win. They were the kings yeah. of the t-shirts. Yeah. Them and Nirvana. Yeah, mm. everyone knows someone who's got one of those t-shirts. Anyway, so that concludes the Blondie portion of the story, and we're at this point going to hand over to Mark yeah. and talk us through highlights. Jump in whenever yeah. you feel inspired. Uh, uh, it's, it's, Firstly, Anne Smith interviewing Frank Ifield, oh, the enemy Frank in 1960. Those who don't know, his thing was yodelling. I yeah. remember, remember you. you. <laughs> um, yeah. And he basically starts trying to teach Alan Smith how to yodel in this interview. So the yodeling words themselves are a big help. Once you start singing yodelity, it comes naturally. <laughs> then he later says, I once went to Switzerland and tried to sell them on my yodelling. I don't think they were too impressed. It was like taking Colts to Newcastle. <laughs> <laughs> I remember you You're the one who made my dreams come true A few kisses ago Skip forward to 67, Mike Grant, a.k.a. Keith Altham, interviewing Monkey Davy Jones from Rave. Actually, Davy Jones comes out of this quite well. He's, he's quite sort of snappy. He says, Freud, everything is Freudian. Load of baloney. That pencil is Freudian. That ice cream is Freudian. <laughs> he, he was obviously going to yeah. reacting to the current sort of yeah, cultural yeah. mores of the time. And there's a later thing. He says, Dad hasn't really grasped the enormity of our success in the States. He still gives my home address to fans who call <laughs> at the house. <laughs> Which I think is really rather brilliant. Davey was from... Coronation. He's Manchester. He was from Manchester. Coronation. Coronation. That's right. So this is, this is yeah. Dad living in a kind of coronation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, keeping the team pop thing going, Caroline Boucher interviewing David Cassidy for Disc in 73. He's, still, he's doing the last series of The Partridge Family. He says, it's no secret I'm almost 23. Little kids who watch Partridge Family think I'm too old for them. Yeah. He had a grotesquely inflated view of his, his capabilities as an artist, which I'm yes. afraid sadly led him to the awful state we saw him in that documentary recently. Yes. You know? And again, keeping the team thing going, Pete Mikowski is sent much to his fury by sounds to hang out with Osmond's fans outside their hotel <laughs> and then later go... To Not the, Pete's usual beat, is no. <laughs> Pete Metal McCowski, you know. He, one of the fans says, one day I got really close to David Cassidy and I bit his arm. I don't know why I did that. I really don't. You know. and, and the thing is, is, what's interesting in this piece is that the fans are actually already pretty cynical about the Osmonds. Mm. You know, they're there because that's where their mates are going. Right. You know, mm. but... You know, it's, it's tissue thin this loyalty mm. to these bands. You know, mm. and half of them are saying they're already onto the you know, the base city rollers or whatever. Well, the Osmonds really didn't mm. mean a great deal by yeah. 1975. I mean, their their wave had crested. Well, I mean, those bands blink and you miss them. They'd have yeah. their two years of ma- pandemonium, and then but then there'd be the spin-offs. Little Jimmy, Little Jimmy, yeah, but Little yeah. Jimmy. I mean, Marie. even the fans yeah. despise Little Jimmy in this this piece. They, they <laughs> God, so did I. <laughs> 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 I think you better read the piece. Yeah, I think yeah. you better read the piece. Uh, <laughs> moving forward to uh, November 78. This is great. I have no idea why this hasn't been in the library for a long time. It's John Savage's review of The Clashes, Give Him Enough Rope. Mm. It's a very long review. It's, it's almost a feature-length review. Mm. And he's pretty scathing. And I, I don't know what your opinion of that album. I, it didn't really register with me at I all. I didn't. I was very disappointed. Yeah. I was a fan. And, uh, uh, well, yeah. and he says, here the clash seem locked in time, stranded on their conception of what the problems are, where solutions are to be found, and what problems face their audience. They have an audience which is loyal to a point of fanaticism. 
enviable but dangerous. They often seem to relate to each other on the basis of mutual reinforcement. Trapped in the circle, the clash's solution is to rock and roll. From being radicals, they become conservatives, mm. which actually is pretty spot on. And it could be reviews like that which forced the clash to reassess things. And with the following album, London Calling, to sort of really try and stretch things Because well, one of the big yeah. issues with this record was that it had been co-produced by actually one of the original Gonzo yeah, yeah. rock critics, yeah. Sandy Palman, who was a who was who was a brilliant writer in his in his way. And he had a school of great, great job with Blue Oyster Cult. Well, that so was a very different aesthetic. But I think the yeah. idea was why the hell is Blue Oyster Cult's producer producing yeah. our our clash? Yeah. Uh, well, yes, I mean, and, and this is the thing: people put their finger on it at the time in '78 because people did have an idea about you know the perfidy of record companies. Yeah. Um, yeah. But also, I think it actually rather reveal the clay feet of the clash themselves yes. and that is is that they were so hungry for american success mm. that when cbs said to them is we you know yeah first album is great but it'll never sell yeah, and, yeah. you know if you want to break big in america you need an american you producer. need an you know because yes. this is the sound the radio needs yeah, yeah. and it's sandy perlman can supply and murray it for Krugman, you. and murray Krugman, they, they they can do it i mean whoever has re- recorded that first album back in 1977 in yeah. these pokey little London didn't studios. Know didn't know what they were yeah. doing. I mean, but I think the problems actually went a bit deeper with mm. the second album. As the songs aren't as good. <laughs> they were, all the That's best right. songs were on the singles. Yeah. 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 Interestingly, next week we're going to be putting up an interview with Peter Jenner, who briefly managed The Clash. Yeah. And he, he talks I, about how they split in America because Mick Jones acted like a rock star yeah, Joe Strummer didn't like that. While Joe Strummer himself behaved like a rock star, and the, the, this notion of rock star and the Clash was a sort of a contradiction, yeah. which was anyway moving swiftly on. Very early into Pat Benatar, oh, <laughs> Sandy yeah. Robertson again in the sounds, and she's this, she's still playing club dates in New York. She hasn't really cracked it big yet. Her first album starting to mm-hmm. move. She says, "My mother wouldn't care if I blew up the United States as long as I was laughing doing it." My father wishes I would wear more clothes. I, I mm. bet he did. And she said, it kind of evolved. I didn't plan on it. I planned it more androgynous than it turned out. Something evolved on stage. And this is basically her turning herself into the sex object that Debbie Harry never really was yes. in that respect. Jim Sullivan talking to Roger Miller, songwriter, frontman of Mission of Burma. Yeah, not the King of the Road. Not the King of the Road, Roger Miller. I love King of the Uh, Road. Basically, this band were about to break up because he had tinnitus. He couldn't operate on stage anymore. And it's true. I looked looked up on Wikipedia. Sure enough, this was it. This is when this band finished. He says, I knew I was damaging my ears. Miller, Burma's main songwriter, explains. I knew to play in a rock band was to be on borrowed time. There was my last chance to do this rock thing, and I'm going to do it because I knew if I didn't do it, when I got older, I'd feel something was never satisfied. Like I didn't complete something I had to complete in my musical career and in my personal life. I had to satisfy a certain part of my life to have been in a rock band that's made records that are as good as records I really like, and I'm really glad I did it. I mean, to have bad enough tennis to stretch to stop playing is Yeah, and it's not like till Townsend at the age of, you know, 70... This is this is a guy who must still be kind of been much more than than thirty or yes. so when he when he that, said that. that, that. that that's Do you right. remember Mission of Burma? Were you a fan at all? Not particularly. Yeah. There are so many. There so comes bad a bad. point where where so many bands. There, were there are so those, many bands. That, sure, yeah. they were one of those Indian American bands that now have a real kind of cult reputation, yeah. and I think without them, you wouldn't have had like the grunge era groups yeah. and Nirvanas and, and so forth. And I'm going to finish up by reading basically two thirds of Stephen Wells's 
review of Napalm Death, Fear, Emptiness, Despair. New album by the Death this week. From the NME in 94. He says, Fear, Emptiness, Despair is awe-inspiringly tunnel-visioned. Lock up your parents' teeth grittingly stupid, in your face, down your trousers, and up your ass like a shit-eating psycho rabbit with rabies and sharpened steel dentures. Rock. (laughs) It makes Metallica sound like the Walter Softies of recorder class. It makes the death scream of a nuke-laden B-52 crashing to a field full of screaming orphans with drum kits sound like a softly whispered, I love you. (laughs) If I were to draw you a picture of a very big and angry dog with massive teeth, then the arrow that pointed to its huge bollocks would say, the new record by Napalm Death. (laughs) It's not Robin Denz, though, is it? (laughs) And I'm sorry, this is why we love the late Stephen Wells. Yeah, Yeah. gonads always find their way into into a a swell. They always do. And on that note, I think we should draw things to a close. Absolutely. <laughs> well, it's been an enormous um, pleasure having you here. Thank you so much for yes. coming in from the My wild. pleasure. Thank to you so visiting. much for having me. I've been yearning to be on this show ever <laughs> since you started doing it. I see all of these other deadbeats you line up. <laughs> Well, we had to wait for the perfect moment. Yes. This seemed to be it. Yes. Uh, in a minute, we're going to drag you out onto a zebra crossing out there and reenact, like everybody does, the cover of, of Abbey Road. You've brought your finest white linen suit along for the occasion. And I'm going to wear bare feet as well. I'm going to be John and Paul. Oh, oh yeah. And let we'll the, the rumours start. <laughs> <laughs> but Matt, thanks so much Why for coming in. Why is Paul dead? Is that the rumour? <laughs> you've been, you know, you've been an essential part of yeah. Back Pages for nearly twenty years and we owe you a lot and we're so grateful to have you on on rvp and it's always lovely to see you uh you know come and see us again soon i would love to thank you same, we'll, same time next week <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to go up with debbie harry talking about being blonde and blondie on see note, you next week see you next week see bye next week. bye I, I, I've read is that uh, your the name is Blondie, but you're not very keen on um, maintaining the image for too much longer. Yeah, it seems that um, you know we decided to use the name Blondie and keep it. You know, when all the when we got the band together finally, because it had received some publicity, and you know it's an easy name to remember and it's sort of descriptive and. You know, it just happens to work out to be a pretty good name. But most of the time, they, people apply it to feminine, and I get, you know, tagged with it, and then they say the band, and, you know, it's really a, a five-piece thing, and try to keep it that way. And, uh, well, you know, you get tired of bleaching your hair. I've always had different color hair, you know, and to try to be stuck with it now, I've been stuck with blonde hair for three years. I was getting tired of it. Yes, yes, my wife did the same, she- it gets really boring having to yeah. get those roots done. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's sort of like if I lived in L.A. or in Florida, where I was born, and spent a lot of time in the sun, it would stay light of its own. But um, New York is <laughs> mostly overcast. <laughs> yes,
That was Debbie Harry of Blondie in conversation with John Tobler in 1977, concluding this week's Rock's Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Matt Snow. His book, The Beatles Solo, is published by Race Point. The hosts are Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and the producer was Jasper Murison Bowie. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. Pretty nice girl, someday I'm gonna make a mine, oh yeah, someday I'm gonna make a mine.